I'd draw your attention back to God's holy word found in Ephesians 4. We'll read 4 through, uh, 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I'll repeat verse 5, which will be our text this morning. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we ask that you would just enlighten our hearts and our minds this morning, Lord, to see from your word, to hear from your word, to be fed from your word. Lord, this this great unity that we have among those who are redeemed, among the body of Christ, that we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, the crucified. We have one faith in Jesus Christ. And we have one baptism into Jesus Christ. Lord, give us hearts receptive this morning. Lord, may we join in one accord with unity and praise the Lamb of God for what amazing things, what miraculous things He has done on our behalf. Lord, be with us here this morning. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week uh, when we started, we talked a little bit about the propensity of man, even fallen men, to seek Uh, out unity based on shared commonalities or shared traits or involvements. And we thought about these things and how that unity according to the flesh will most often fail. It will not be a unity that that lasts, that uh, that endures. Uh, Paul, here in our our, uh, text this morning and and in this this beginning part of verse uh, chapter 4, he is contending... Uh, that we would maintain a different type of unity. Uh, something that already exists based on the fact that we have been born again. That these redeemed of the Lord have become a new creation. They've been born again. Uh, he tells these Christians to be eager to maintain this unity. He says in verse 4 that we looked at last week, the first two words of, of verse 4 of chapter 4, there is... There is, implying that there already inherently exists because of this new creation. There already exists a unity, uh, a a joining of the born-again Christians into a new body. He says, one body, born of one spirit, and given to us and giving to us this, this one hope which belongs to our our call. All three of these things that we looked at last week are related to the Spirit of God, who has called us to a new life 
and has given confidence to us in all these things that Christ has done on our behalf. And, it, and the Spirit is the down payment of this, the earnest of our joint share in that which Christ Himself has earned. His inheritance. We are joint heirs of that. Let's think about this, uh, this unity uh, for a second, kind of once again in, in a, a way that might illustrate this to us. I have a very, very large family on the Walker side. And there are a few members of this family that I still don't know. I've never met. But have you ever had an, an individual or a family member, I should say, a family member that you've known about for a long time, but you've, you've never met? Uh, maybe at, at, a, at a great distance and never had the opportunity to come together and meet one another face to face. But the day arrives and, and you all have an opportunity to finally meet. And there, there is something often, this has been the case at least in those that I've met, there's, there's often something that's oddly familiar about that family member. Even if there's a distance, you know, second, third cousin, first cousin, three times removed, however you want to say these things, there's often a familiarity because you are part of the same family. Shared mannerisms. Shared traits. Uh, there's, there's some cousins that we even make the same hand motions and have the same mannerisms in the way that we walk and that we talk. Oddly familiar, even though we've not been around each other. This is by nature of familial ties or familial traits. Uh, creating a sense of unity immediately with those individuals. Well, Paul is saying that this is the case in the lives of Christians, but it isn't this way by nature of the first birth. That there are shared familial traits by nature of the second birth. These things Paul mentions are not random ideas, not coulds or shoulds. These are well thought out sources of unity that he mentions in verses 4 through 6. These, these are well thought out. They're, they're rational things that he is pointing out that exist of those who have been born of the Spirit, united to Christ, those who are sons of God. But these go deeper than just the mere thoughts and rationale of Paul. These are things that are inspired by the Holy Spirit and penned by Paul. In these three verses, we have this sevenfold unity of which Paul speaks. Last week, we looked at those things which unite us according to the Spirit in verse 4, and this morning, we're going to be looking at verse 5, at those things which unite us according to the Son, according to Christ. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. This verse that we are considering here this morning, it's a, it's a short one. It's consisting of just six words. Three of those, two of those, or one of those words is repeated three times. Uh, six words, uh, but they have an immense weight lying underneath them. Having looked at the fact that there is one body, a natural question arises to those who have knowledge of the way that the body works. And that question is, if this is the body then who is the head? Who is the head of this body? 
Paul has already dealt with this. If you look back in Ephesians 1, verse 22 through 23, where Paul tells us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 22, and he put all things under his feet, that is Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head of the body spoken of by the Apostle Paul, and the body cannot exist if it is disconnected from the head. Paul states in another epistle, in the first epistle to the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are for from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And now listen to what he says, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things, and through whom we exist. This body would not exist and could not exist if not in union to the head which is Christ, this one Lord. Jesus Christ. Think back about what has been mentioned over and over again in our study of Ephesians. How many times have we seen and made mention of the concept of being in Christ? Being in Christ. This one Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has purchased us. He has redeemed us. He owns us. Everything we are is in Him. Peace. If we look at Ephesians 1 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing through this one Lord. Ephesians 1 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The, the one Lord, Jesus Christ is the one Lord in whom we are joined together. In Ephesians 2, verse 20 through 22, we read, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, that is in Christ, in this one Lord, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We could go on and on, and we have gone on and on, into looking at these passages regarding what Christians are and what they receive through this union to the one Lord in Christ, in Him. Paul is laboring to tell us that, there, that this is a vital part of the unity that exists. And one of the best and most profound ways we have to maintain or to preserve this unity that exists among the body of Christ is to focus and have our, have our eyes fixed to the doctrine of the Son of God, the doctrine of this one Lord. He is one Lord. He is absolutely and utterly unique. There's not a single being like Him. 
He is the God-man, truly God and truly man. He is God incarnate. He was not made. He was not made. He was not born and made into existence. John 1, we quote this a lot. John 1, 1 through 4, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He was not created. Our one Lord is unique among men. John 1.14 tells us that this Word that was with God, the Word that was God, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me quote Lloyd-Jones here. Lloyd-Jones says he was a man. Truly man. He was a man. He belonged to time. He was in time. He was in the world. And yet, in a sense, Lloyd-Jones says, to speak thus is already wrong. Our statements about him must never be made separately and alone. When you look at him, you are not only looking at a man. You are looking at the same time at God, the eternal Son. You are looking at the Lord of glory. This is our one Lord. He is unique and He is the head of the church, which is His body. There is only one head. Only one. The body cannot move and have its being in more than one head, or else that body would not be united in its purpose. The body would be in conflict to two masters. This would cause disunity and conflict, but Paul tells us we are unified in our one Lord, the head of the church. When the body takes direction from any other, there is disunity. We have one Lord. He is the head of the one body. And we take our directions as the one body from the one head. This brings about a, an important doctrine that we'll discuss briefly this morning, a doctrine that divides us from all other religions. There is one Lord and there is no other. Christianity is exclusive. It is not inclusive. Christianity is exclusive. Jesus Christ is our one Lord to the exclusion of all others. Jesus said of himself in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That allows for no exceptions. He is the one way. Our one Lord is the only Lord. The only Lord. 
There is no multiplicity of ways. There is no plurality of lords. There is one Lord in one way. Acts 4 verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one name, and it belongs to our one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing added to Him and nothing subtracted from Him. One Lord. There is, according to Scripture, one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ. One Lord. One Lord. We belong to Him. He has purchased us. We are His possession. (coughs) Ephesians 1 verse 7 When we studied through that, you'll remember, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In Him we have redemption. We've been purchased. We have been bought, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, our one Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 tells us, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. One Lord, one Master. What would it do, think about this, what would it do for the unity of the body if we held our eyes transfixed on our one Lord? What would it do? Would it not be something that would cause us to be eager to maintain the unity that Paul talked about earlier in Ephesians 4? Would not our own desires melt away and be replaced with the desires of the one who rules over us and has purchased us with his own blood, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has given us life? Christ himself was a perfect picture of that in the garden. Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass over. Nevertheless, not your will, not my will, but thine. My will melts away in service to one, my one master, my one Lord. There was a time when to say Christ is Lord was, had it with it a possibility of being punished by death. Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Christ is God. In the early church during the time of emperor worship, all were required to devote themselves to Caesar, to Caesar worship, and declare that Caesar is Lord. The Romans were okay if you had other lords, as long as you also declared that Caesar is Lord. But that came up against what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians 4. We have one Lord, one only, one Lord. And the Christians could not say Caesar is Lord because they have one Lord, one Master, one. Jesus Christ is Lord and He alone is Lord at the exclusion of all others. One head, one Lord of one body. You see how all of this fits together? 
what Paul is telling us about this unity? How seamlessly all this fits together? John Gill stated it like this, The Lord Jesus Christ, who by right of creation is Lord of all, and by right of marriage and redemption is the one and only Lord of His church and people. He has betrothed them to Himself and is their husband and so their Lord, whom they are to worship and obey. He has redeemed them. He has bought them with the price of His blood and therefore they are not their own but His and should glorify Him both with their bodies and souls, which are His. He is the head of His body, the church, the King of saints and Father and Master of the family named of Him. Paul goes on to tell us not only that there is one Lord, but there is one faith. There's a lot of division over what this means. And that is ironic considering the fact that Paul is giving us a list of things that already exist in the unity of the body of Christ. So whatever it is that this means, it must by nature of the argument Paul is making be something that exists in unity between all the body. And because there is one body, this must be something that exists throughout all time, Old Testament and New Testament. It is a point of commonality among all Christians, all the body of Christ, all of this one body that we read about in verse 4. We don't have time to go into all the details of what is argued about in regard to, to these two words. I will tell you that, that I will argue for this being in reference to what Paul has already stated back in Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is something that is shared among all believers, is it not? All who are saved are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift. It has nothing to do with us or our abilities. It's not a measure of faith that we must muster up to a certain level to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This faith is given to us as a gift. It is not inherent in us. It is given to us. It is this gift of faith whereby we are able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as our one Lord. It is a gift of the Spirit which unites us to Christ, implanting us into this one body, placing us like a branch into the vine. We live by this one faith. It is that which unites us to the living branch. John 15, 4 through 5, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot, cannot bear fruit by itself 
unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Nothing. It is faith which unites us, that gift of faith, which is the mechanism which implants and embeds the branch into the vine, and out of the vine comes life. And evidence of that life is borne out in bearing fruit. Isn't that what we learned from Paul in Ephesians already? Look at Ephesians 2. Verse 10. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, in our one Lord. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. United to Him and saved by grace through faith, which is the gift of God, and proof of that, abiding in Him, of that being in the branch, is fruit being produced. This one faith is not a body or system of beliefs. As much as I would love to see everyone who claims to be a Christian believe exactly the same things. We, we have varying systems of belief throughout history. And history bears to us that there are differences of opinions in certain areas of what we would deem as certain areas of the faith, certain doctrines, <coughs> certain tenets of the faith, clearly seen to us throughout history. I want to be careful when I say this because I do think that there are certain beliefs, and don't get me wrong, there are certain beliefs that will always be present and upheld among the redeemed. But it is not this that unites us to Christ. It is this one faith that unites us to Christ. It is salvation by grace through faith and through faith alone that saves us. Not a certain system of beliefs or tenets of faith that ultimately unites us. We are justified by faith. Salvation saved by grace through faith. There are people who I love and know that are strong Christians who differ greatly in areas or systems of what we call statements or what we call statements of faith. There are those that uphold the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith as a system or a, a, a uh, outline of what they believe, the doctrines that they believe. There are those who uphold the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are those that... that uh, uphold the Belgic Confession of Faith or the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. Many, many others. There are differences in beliefs about baptism, eschatology. I mean, think about the differences in eschatology. Premillennial, postmillennial, all-millennial, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, no-trib rapture. I mean, tons of differences. 
How can this be the unity that Paul is talking about? If it's a system of faith. This is what Paul is dealing with. Is it not things that are unifying to the body? Let's remember this when we are dealing with things that Paul says that we are dealing with things that Paul says already exist. They already exist in unity. The thief on the cross had no great understanding of systematic theology. Think about that for a moment. But what Christian would say, because he doesn't understand the great tenets of the faith, that that man went to hell? What Christian is going to say that? Would that, not, would that Christian not take the word of the one Lord? Luke 23, 38 through 43. Listen to this. There was also an inscription over him that is over Christ while he was hanging on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. Remember, there were three people that were hung on a cross that day. Christ was in the middle and there were two thieves. One of the criminals who were hanged railed, who were hanged, railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man had no understanding of the great truths of Scripture. I'll never forget Alistair Begg in a way that only Alistair Begg can, can talk about this. He spoke of wanting to speak with this man one day and just ask him, how did this all shake out? I mean, one moment you're hanging on a cross, ridiculing him, and then all of a sudden you're, you're in glory with him. How did this shake out? And he, he talked about how one came up and asked him, well, you know, what is your understanding of, of the, the doctrine of justification? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, how did you get here? And Alistair Begg said, he looked at him and he said, the man in the middle cross told me I could come. This is the one faith that we're talking about. We're not talking about a complete understanding of all these grand and great doctrines that Paul himself in the first three chapters has just been laying out for us over and over, building upon brick by brick. These great truths. It's faith. The gift of faith. It wasn't faith plus adherence to doctrine that saved that man on the cross. That brought this sinner into paradise. But it was the grace of God through faith that laid hold of this thief and brought him into glory. One faith. One faith throughout all the body which unites them. One faith. If there were two bodies, 
If there was one for us now that Christ has come, and one body that exists for those before Christ came, it's not what Paul says, is it? There is one body. There's not separate bodies. There's one body. There's one faith. Not a different faith before Christ came. The same faith. One faith. I, I, I'm going to ask you, was salvation different in the Old Testament than it is in the New? Was it different? Absolutely not. It was one faith. Romans 4, 1 through 9. Romans 4, 1 through 9. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So even in the Old Testament, there was one faith. Sometime look through Hebrews 11. That chapter that we refer to as the great faith chapter, or the hall of faith, as some call it. There is a unity between those that it speaks of from the Old Testament in Hebrews 11 and those of the New Testament. It's faith. Why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable to God? Why? It was accepted and not Cain's. And there are all kinds of issues that people bring up about why it was and why it wasn't. Well, his was a sacrifice of blood versus a sacrifice of the fruit of the ground. Or his was of his, it was not of his own work that, that he sacrificed the, the lamb. And, and, and Cain's was, was of the work that he did of the ground. I have no idea, but I'll tell you what Scripture says. In Hebrews 11, we're told that by faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith. This is the one faith. It is God's gift to His people whereby they might be united to Him, believe on Him and His promises, and are saved by His grace through this one faith. The Old Testament saints looking forward to the coming of the Messiah in this one faith. The one Lord that they're looking for 
with one faith and us looking back to the one Lord, both through the one faith that unites us all in our one Lord. This is the whole of our message to the lost, isn't it? We don't tell them that they must be saved by accepting a certain set of dogmas or a certain set of tenets of the faith or doctrines. We preach Christ, our one Lord, crucified, and that this salvation accomplished on our behalf by this one Lord is by grace, by the grace of God, through faith. And that it is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Paul even defends this message in Galatians. In Galatians 1, 8-9, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it. Because it's that important. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's not let him have a hard time. Not let him have difficulties in the way in which he does this. Paul is literally saying, let the one who preaches this other gospel be damned to hell. Let him go to hell rather than suffer others to be led astray by this other gospel other than justification by faith alone. There most certainly are great truths and we love these great truths. Great doctrines of the faith. But they are not the one faith. The great doctrines flow out of the one faith. Do you see the difference? And then Paul tells us last two words in Ephesians 4, 5, one baptism. Time is, uh, is against us this morning, but let's, let's go on uh, and we'll try and cover this quickly. One baptism. Here is something else that seems to divide the church, does it not? Baptism. Credo versus pedo, baptism. How do we baptize? Do we immerse? Do we sprinkle? Do we pour water over? Not even to mention baptismal regeneration and those that believe in baptismal regeneration versus a believer's baptism. I don't have the time, and this is not the occasion for us to discuss these things in great detail. I will say that I completely discard baptismal regeneration as being biblical. I wholly believe in believer's baptism by immersion and the necessity of following the commands of Christ for believers to be baptized. Each and every one who has been saved should follow the Lord in public profession of their salvation through baptism and be joined to a local church. One body, though. Many local churches. One body. I don't have any doubts about these things at all. But there are brothers and sisters of the Lord 
who have different opinions on these things. So what is meant by this one baptism? I hope that one day we can look at this in more detail, but now let's just take a quick look at what this one baptism that unites instead of divides the body of Christ. I will say that I do not believe that this is speaking primarily about the outward ordinance of baptism. This one baptism that Paul speaks of. I would contend that this is regarding that which the ordinance of baptism signifies and pictures for us. This thing that the ordinance of baptism signifies is what is a source of unity among the body of Christ. This thing that it signifies. I reject the notion of the ordinance of baptism having anything whatsoever to do with the saving effect of being associated with it. It achieves nothing, but it signifies something extremely important. It says it signifies something that has to do with our salvation. We are baptized as a sign of what we have been baptized or immersed into. And that is we have been immersed into our Lord Jesus Christ, our one Lord. We have been baptized into the realm of Christ, placed into Him. We talked about this, I think, a couple weeks ago. Probably the best way of illustrating what it means to be in Christ is to look at what God did for Noah in the ark. God placed Noah and his family inside the ark. He put them in the ark and he shut the door. He baptized them, he immersed them into the ark. And everything, the wrath of God and everything that came as a result of the wrath of God beat down upon that ark just like it beat down upon those who were outside the ark. But those who were in the ark were sheltered from the wrath of God. This is being in Christ. We have been placed into Christ, joined to Him under His authority and in the sphere of His work and His influence. We were in Him, immersed in Him, into His death, into His burial, into His resurrection, and into His ascension. Romans 6, we've read. We read in our scripture reading this morning, 3 through 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we had been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think back to all that Paul has already been revealing to us. Before we even knew the reality of these great doctrines. Think about this. The people of God were chosen in Christ. Before the foundation of the world. Chosen in Christ. Given to Him. Placed in Him. And it is in Him that we were made sons. It is in Him that we have redemption through His blood. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, His inheritance. We have been baptized, brought into His body. We have been brought out of the race of Adam. A sinful race. And we have been placed into Christ. Made alive to Him. Through Him. Joined to Him. Colossians 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has rescued us from this domain of darkness. He has gone in and taken us out of that domain. And transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. God has taken us out of the domain of darkness and He has placed us into something else. Into the kingdom of His Son. Into Christ. Baptized into Him. And that which we refer to as the ordinance of baptism is simply an outward sign, a profession of that reality that has already taken place in this one baptism by one faith in one Lord. Let us, let's finish with this scripture. And I hope that it will speak more plainly on this than I have in the brief time we've looked at this. It, it ties all of this we have dealt with this morning together. Have in your minds as we read this passage, and if you want to go ahead and turn to Galatians 3, be turning there. But have in your minds as we read through this passage in Galatians 3, 22 through 29, have in your mind one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Galatians 3, 22 through 29. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Unity. Unity. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. One hope by one spirit. There is, Paul tells us from our text, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let us take heart to what Paul is telling us. There is unity among the redeemed of the Lord. Lord willing, we'll come back to this next week and finish out this sevenfold unity and go beyond. But there is unity in these things. But as it is a fact that there is unity among the body of Christ, this by nature causes a disunity among those who are not in the body of Christ. If you have not experienced this unity, if it is not a reality in your life, then I urge you to seek the one Lord. It's only in Him and being placed in Him that there is a way to have this unity. He is the appointed way and there is no other one Lord to the exclusion of all others. He alone, this one Lord, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to God except through Him. You can't power your way through. You can't stand before Almighty God in your own merit. You can't achieve enough righteousness to stand before a holy God. And if you're left in your own filthy rags, you'll be removed from His presence and spend eternity separated from Him and this one body that Paul tells us about, this body of Christ. You must be immersed into Christ. You must be baptized into Christ. You must, by the gift of this one faith, put on Christ. You must stand before God dressed in someone else's righteousness. And that's Christ's righteousness. The garment of the one Lord is what you need to be accepted 
into God's presence and to dwell there for all eternity. It is in Him and Him alone that we have this one hope that we talked about last week. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You for the opportunity that we have to come together as members of this one body and worship You, to to see the truth of Your holiness and Your righteousness and Your greatness. Lord, to see how ill-deserving we are of being recipients of grace. But Lord, we, we are so thankful, Lord, for what You have done in choosing Your people before the foundation of the world and sending Christ who You've placed them in to, to live a holy life, to offer Himself as a sacrifice, to be the satisfaction for our sins, as your wrath was poured out upon him for for those sins that he didn't commit, those sins which were ours. Lord, we thank you for his victory over sin and death. And we thank you that being placed in him, we also have been raised to newness of life. Lord, that we have a hope in what Christ has done. Not wishful thinking, not not some fantasy, but a grounded hope, grounded in the promises that we've seen that have already been fulfilled and the knowledge that You are a God who is holy and righteous and You are unchanging and You are the only keeper of promises. And Lord, we have confidence in this. This is our one hope. Lord, bless us as we have fellowship together today and then come back together to to fellowship more around Your Word and in meditating upon You. Lord, we thank You. It's in Your precious and holy Son's name we we pray. Amen.